Hey there, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I chat with interesting people doing fascinating things who inspire me and hopefully you guys to get out of our comfort zones. We hear their stories and along the way, we delve into the strategies that they use for getting uncomfortable and why they're going about getting uncomfortable. If you guys have been listening in for a little while, you might remember the episode uh, number 68 with Digby Scott uh, last month. I had a great time chatting with Digby. And as I was leaving, he handed me a DVD and said, you need to watch this. And if you love it, then you need to talk to the guy who directed it. So I sat down the other day and I watched this film called Last Paradise. Uh, and it was it was incredible. Uh, so Digby thankfully uh, gave me gave me Clive's uh, contact detail, so I managed to get in, in contact with him. So Last Paradise is the lifetime work of Clive Neeson, who is a, a physicist, an adventurer, a technology innovator, and a speaker. Clive grew up on safari in East Africa as his parents filmed wild animals during the 1950s. In New Zealand and Aussie, he joined a group of young maverick guys who would become the pioneers of today's extreme sports. Uh, Clive studied for six years under pioneering physicist uh, and disciple of Ernest Rutherford, Professor Bruce Lilly, and graduated with a master's degree in physics and electronic engineering. Clive worked for 30 years as an international expert in high-tech innovation and energy projects from Silicon Valley to the Middle East. From the first digital climate monitoring system to nationwide control systems for power generation, many were world firsts, requiring deep mastery of physics and hardware and software. So Clive's been living a double life between extreme sports Uh, and the entrepreneurial high-tech world. Clive filmed his journey from experimental beginnings, building his own filming technology on the side to get a closer perspective of the action sports that he and his mates were undertaking, the innovative spirit and unique beauty of extreme New Zealand, Australia and the world. So back in 2007, Clive had an opportunity to digitally remaster 45 years of film footage in high quality uh, at Peter Jackson's studios to create Last Paradise. And he says, the main thrust of this film is to inspire people to pursue their life's dream, to study the physical sciences and form a personal relationship with the natural wilderness in the hope that they'll be moved to save it. This 45-year journey gives gives us an insight into how much the world has changed in one lifetime um, and gives us a look back into what normal, in parentheses, was for the planet, why we need to innovate, and how. Um, So it's about making science sexy uh, with the appeal of of the hook and fun of adventure and adventure sports and it's it's incredibly worth a watch and and definitely makes you makes you think a lot about things about what it is that you're doing but also what it is the direction that we're going in as a as a society 
So there's some amazing stuff that we we talk through um, in this chat today, uh, and I, I I think I can't I can't really jump into it too much at the moment because I won't do it justice. You have to you have to listen to it. But a couple of the really awesome things that I that I took away was when Clive and I had a talk about searching out for a humble mentor to kind of guide you through your journey. Um, I really enjoyed enjoyed that concept. Um, another thing that is kind of a little bit more in your face as well is when Clive talks about how how we live our lives at the moment. Some most of us, um, and use the metaphor of a battery hen that we're kind of just enclosed in this in this small space. We're not going out exploring. We're not uh, engaging with other people. Um, and he, he talks a lot more around that as well. So I had a, an amazing time having a chat with Clive. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy his film, The Last Paradise. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a listen to our chat today. Um, and if you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is just by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If that's Apple Podcasts or if it's uh, another podcast app, uh, sharing the sharing the show, sharing the message out with your mates on social media or at work around the water cooler or telling your grandma about it as well. Uh, and for those people who want to, to support the show financially as well, we have a Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash uncomfortable is okay. Thank you for p- the people that have been helping out already. But again, Thanks to you guys for listening in and thanks for getting uncomfortable with Clive and I today. Thanks for uh, taking a little bit of time to have a chat with me today. It's a pleasure, Chris. Excellent. So I'm I'm sitting here in in Wellington on a cold Wellington, uh, well, it's supposedly spring afternoon now. Um, but you're all the way over in Mauritius at the moment. What are you doing over there? Well, um, I've been here for about two months actually, and then had a month over in Madagascar. I just come back, and really, it's uh, surfing and kite surfing. Just looking at New spots, hopefully, and uh, surfing the traditional spots. Mm, very exciting, very exciting. Before we kind of jump into that stuff too much more, mate, can you give me and the listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Um, kind of who is who is Clive Neeson? Where are you? Where are you from? Were there any kind of major formative experiences early on that have shaped you as a person? Well, that's a good question. I've never really dwelled on that. But uh, I suppose uh, growing up in Africa till I was about eight years old, I only just realized actually coming back from Madagascar now, what Africa does to you. Uh, you're so wide-eyed from the time you're born. There are things happening around you that are much bigger than you, and they're wild. And I think that really puts you on your toes. And you do have a reverence but a respect for the wilderness. 
I think that came out of that. And since I've met other people over here in Mauritius that grew up in Africa, I realized they have that same kind of trait is that you don't seem to belong to any herd at all, but uh, they seem to be more individuals. Now, I can't dwell on that too much, but but I think there's, there's definitely something that uh, affected myself and my brothers as we grew up in Africa. And we were always on safari, of course, because our parents were filming wild animals. And there were, of course, 20 times more animals back then when we lived there. And then coming to New Zealand and then finding this place where, for once, you could go out in the wilderness safely, then you still have this innate uh, appetite for danger and the wilderness. And you go out in the New Zealand wilderness and there's all these amazing things. And the most scary thing in the New Zealand wilderness is the forces of nature. New Zealand is very extreme in terms of gravity. There are high mountain peaks. Uh, there's big surf and there's strong winds. And that really excited us. So I'm afraid we, we didn't really play footy as kids. We, we, we wagged that on Saturday mornings and we were up in the mountains. And it was there where we met other kids who were similarly excited. And that pretty much came the vein of life. It so happened that many of those kids that we met ended up being quite well known as the, as the pioneers of what New Zealand um, would call extreme sports. And so I think that's been really my, my following in life has been um, not only immersion in the wilderness and tapping the forces of nature, but trying to discover the absolute baseline mechanism that drives nature. And so I became a physicist. So I guess in a nutshell, <laughs> that's how I would have come to be a physicist who likes extreme sports. And out of that has come um, not only a career, but, but a lifestyle and also the passion of filmmaking again. That's, that's really interesting actually. And quite, quite interesting. The, um, the diversity from over the, the disparity coming from from Africa, where wilderness kind of almost comes to you, although obviously your parents were were following following it around. When you came to New Zealand, was it a little? Did it, if you remember, did it take a little while to kind of change your change your behaviours and uh, kind of stop? being on your toes quite as much when you're outside just because of the other than the, the forces of nature the the animal life and the the other dangers weren't around in New Zealand yes there are other things I think there was a socialization of school because we were homeschooled in Africa and in on Australia we were also traveling around Australia for a year on the way so we were homeschooled for, for most of our time and then coming into school in New Zealand we were just immersed straight into this culture that was so set in concrete and established in the Kiwi way that we were just bamboozled by how we should fit into it. And so I think that drove us out to the wilderness because time at school was actually quite awkward. And then releasing from school at three o'clock and being able to go back out in the wilderness and having three brothers to do it with, um, I think that, that was really a big part of it as well. We don't realize in New Zealand, and I say we because I've been in New Zealand so long now, most of my life, we don't realize that we are a different culture in our own right. And then when someone comes into New Zealand, 
everything is so weird and different that they very much they can either retreat, go into a shell, or they can thrive on it. And I think I probably went into a shell there. And what I did was thrive on what I knew, which was the wilderness. That's yeah, that's that's interesting, and I I agree with you. New Zealand has a, it does have a really strong, interesting culture as well. That um, obviously I, I I've grown up here, and uh, it's sometimes not until you until you leave New Zealand and um, kind of go away for a while and then come back that you actually notice how strong a culture it is and kind of how everything uh, yeah really sort of sits around that around that Kiwi way but I, I want to have a little bit more of a talk about the kind of that the wilderness and the outdoor activities and some of the adventures that you that you've gone gone on now I was I was first introduced to you um, by Digby Scott who was a guest on the show a couple of couple of weeks ago um, and he handed me your film Last Paradise which I would love to to have a chat with you about so, I mean, the, the tagline with it is a global quest for adventure, 45 years in the making, all in stunning original footage. Um, and I would very much, very much agree with that. When you, like, when, when you got to New Zealand and as you started to go out and explore the wilderness, what, um, what kind of led you on to kind of starting, starting the events in the film? What, made you decide to hey this is something that i want to document out the adventures that we're having well first of all i probably recognized that what we were doing was raw and hadn't been done before but again if you go back to africa when we were living in out in a little village as it was then called the rusha and we were filming and there was these bunch of guys came into town and they set up this fancy film equipment which just was uh, incredibly impressive um and they're filming right near our house at the time that we were staying in at least um and uh the star of this film was john wayne and and we didn't really understand what was going on but it was all very uh impressive in terms of equipment but boring in terms of what they were doing um what we were doing out there when we were on safari was scary and what they're doing didn't seem that's scary. And then coming to New Zealand, this film was released. It was called Hatari. And it was the first film I ever saw in the cinema. And I was so amazed that what we saw them doing as boring was so mind-blowingly impressive and dangerous looking on the big screen. And then I reflected on my parents' uh, filming of the wild animals and thought, that's just raw. There's, there's no film there. And at the age of 15, or was it 11 years old, um, I started thinking about how do these people do it in the cinema? How do they create something that captures the audience and brings them into the world so much more real to life than it really is, or at least as it is in reality, rather than distancing them as it seemed with our footage with inferior cameras and uh, filming the way you do. And so I became a little bit, uh, I would say, interested or obsessed with capturing the same feel as the cinemas did, but of our adventures, not of wild animals. Now, my mother, who was uh, not a bad cinematographer, she was already starting to film 
us playing in the wilderness. The reason was she grew up in an orphanage. She was taken from her mother at two years old and put in an orphanage, didn't have an education, and then due to World War II was able to escape and then go to Africa. And I say escape because it was a very, very cruel upbringing. And they did not, none of the girls in the orphanage ever had a childhood. They were pretty much child slaves. She washed toilets for most of her life, concrete on the floor. And coming to New Zealand, seeing us boys playing was something she'd never seen before. So she pulled out the camera. She had all the camera gear there from Africa. And then that, I think that footage there shows not only how kids play, how kids play when they're not taught how to play. Because we weren't doing the formal sports, the rugby, the cricket, and so on. We were going out, finding something, building something, and then taking on nature. For one, she hadn't seen kids play like that. And secondarily, it does display that in our society, we are taught how to play. We're taught how to work, but we're also taught how to play. And then that that's twigged with her, is that this is how kids play, naturally. So not only was it the first time for her, who had never seen it before, but it was actually a revelation about the nature of kids themselves and of our society that tells kids how they will play and these are the rules. So unknowingly, we were playing in the most natural way and then were in the right venues, that is the wilderness, to meet other kids who played in the same way. And out of that came this, uh, how would you call this, sort of co-generation this the synergy of these kids who were onto something new, but we didn't know it. But I only had a notion that with my interest from film, from seeing the, the, the cinema films, and I used to do like every key we did, you know, go and find beer bottles and, and Coke bottles under hedges and clean them out and take them to the dairy and save up for, for a matinee movie. And I'd sit in the matinee movie and I would imagine around me I would imagine around me the people like John Wayne had a guy with a tripod, another guy with a camera on a, a mobile, and, and they would be filming his film. I didn't imagine cowboys and Indians out, out in, Africa, in, in, uh, in America. I imagined the, uh, all the movie set around me, and that's all I was thinking of. So when I, I got $7, I went to the um, – saved $7. I, I, I went to a pawn shop and bought a broken movie camera. And then I, I fixed it up. It's just like a clockwork train in those days, no electronics. And then I started filming my friends close up in the same way I imagined they must have been doing in the cinema. And that became the beginnings of my filming. And so I think it was a combination of this passion that was developing for movie and this realization that everything we're doing was so exciting because we were inventing it. We even said it back then, let's go and invent another sport today. And and we would be excited with our mates to go out and uh, you'd go to the rubbish tip and design equipment and build equipment from rubbish, basically. And, uh, you know, just take on the New Zealand wilderness. So the filming of the New Zealand wilderness was something I think it had the em embryonic stage way back then. That's that's really interesting, and there are a couple of things that are striking me from that. One is one is about the filming um, that I'm going to ask you in a minute, but the other one is that um, kind of formal versus informal play as a as a child. And you're saying that you guys were kind of learning to play in a much more informal way than, say, a lot of New Zealand kids. 
are taught how to play kind of via a, a sporting uh, a sporting background or kind of brought up in that way what what skills do you think that informal play has taught you as opposed to say someone that was kind of taught to play from a almost a sporting background well for one thing I, it's probably given me a, a few um, sports that I'm still passionate about and and keep me in you know in reasonable health in my later years um, but I think what it gave me psychologically was this belief that you can invent anything just because everyone does it that way there is another way and if you know the ground rule principles if you know the principles first principles as we say in physics you know it from first principles you can rethink the pathway and go out there on your own now that played out both in innovation of electronic technology which became my career and taking on places like silicon valley so you go there and you say, oh, no, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to come from this angle and I'm going to carve out this path. So it gave you the sense of liberation that there are no blocks in the road. There's always a novel approach. And just because everyone's doing it this way, it actually opens up another road that no one's blocking out. And that became a pathway through business and through uh, my career you know, in science. Yeah, that that's really interesting as well. I mean, if if a whole lot of people are trying to do things like in one way, then there there is always another way. There's a whole lot of, as I say, there's a whole lot of ways to to skin a cat. Um, and if you if you can kind of see things from a different perspective and take a a different road, one that there isn't so much, um, there aren't so many people trying to go down. It. it definitely offers you um, interesting, exciting opportunities with that. I want to jump back to the, the question that I had about about the filming. So you started you started filming yourself and your mates in, in the wilderness, um, doing things and inventing things. Was that initially just for you guys to watch or did you think, hey, actually this is this has got the potential to have a wider audience. Other people might be interested in, in this. Probably both. Uh, we were excited that what we were doing in the weekends was a good watch, but um, no one could ever see it because we were always out down the back of a farm or off a cliff or whatever. There was no audience, if you like. We weren't really looking for an audience, and it was very difficult to show it anyway. If you showed your film back then, you would scratch it probably. So I'm not sure what it was. It was just that want to be able to capture something. But I can remember something in um, in absolute terms, and that was when my mother became excited about what we were doing and she could no longer see what we were doing, I wanted to show her, and that particularly was when we started surfing, to be able to put a camera on the front of a surfboard, for example, and actually show her what, what surfing was like at the very, very early days at Raglan, you know, what a tube looked like from the inside. And I'd describe it to her. Because I, I had a compassion for the fact that she never knew these things at childhood, but also that she had a great excitement about what we were doing and our friends were doing. Our friends were all mavericks. <laughs> so it really, she had an adventurous spirit. And I thought if I could show her these movies, she could, how do you say, live, live uh, vicariously through our adventures. So that, that was one driving force. 
And I think the other driving force was that uh, one day I figured I wouldn't be able to do these things. And I had a sense that the world was changing. The world would change so rapidly that it would be intriguing to be able to reflect back on these. In the same sense that people take movies. For one thing, you grow up and you change and there's a difference in itself. But right then, there was something happened that's never happened uh, since the, you know, the origins of this planet. And that is that we stepped in the beginning of last paradise, we stepped from the Holocene to the Anthropocene. That is a world which was dominated by animals in which humans had a small play and were on their back foot to a world which is dominated by humans and animals have virtually been cleaned off the planet except for food purposes. And I see that everywhere I go now. That's born out in Last Paradise between the lines, not deliberately or, or uh, um, expressly, but it's it's born out as you see the way the world was then in Africa, early New Zealand, and then you see it today. And what kids can do and can't do, but also really the wilderness and the animal kingdom. That is a change which happens every 50,000 or more years and bang, in one movie, it's evident. Mm. Because we were going to, in Last Paradise, we were intentionally going to places which were unexplored by tourism. So therefore, they are pretty much untouched. The cultures were intact. The animal and plant kingdom were intact when we went there and filmed them as teenagers and during the time that my parents were on safari. Um, so this is why the, the contrast is striking because being out there and filming it 50 years ago now, um, in those particular places, you will see the rapid change. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, you guys were, you guys were very much explorers in, in that era and going out and adventuring and doing uh, amazing stuff and exploring uh, the wilderness, exploring your limits and exploring yourselves as well with the i mean obviously things had changed quite considerably even from the start of the start of when you began filming to where we are with things today and it is evident in the last paradise the way that we see the world shifting at, at the moment i'd be really interested in your kind of insight on on how you've seen the planet change over over your lifetime and how since you started filming well as i say we've we've gone through two eras or two epochs as it calls um where we've we've basically gone from where uh the animal kingdom dominated to where mankind dominated um and i've personally seen a huge change because i grew up in those places in the wilderness and became very familiar with the way it worked and the way it was. And now, still doing a lot of uh, traveling, I've seen how all of those places have changed. And it's not just alarming, but it's very sad. And what's changed, and as you'll see in, again in the film Last Paradise, what you'll see also, the culture has gone. Now, what the significance of the culture having gone is that people's identity and their well-being and their happiness and their sense of community, it disappears. We've moved into cities 
and no less has that happened in New Zealand. And this constant urbanization has deprived people of community. We have ghost towns all around New Zealand. Taranaki is full of them, all because of corporate policy and government policy. We need to be proper government stems these flows and preempts them. And the consequence is that worldwide, people have become very, um, I just say, um, less connected to community. And uh, the sense of worth and identity as belonging to a culture has, has gone. So we've had both a loss in terms of uh, the, the physical world, but also in terms of the social world as well. This this is a quite a large question, Clive, um, and you you may not. <laughs> I don't expect you to have all the answers to it, but with the the social changes that have happened, have you seen kind of any main themes or main drivers that have um, incited those changes or caused those changes to happen? I think physically the move to the cities. That is that uh, pe- most people were living in communities where everyone knew everyone and there was all support there. Uh, there's probably been the, the fact that so we're no longer a religious society. There was always someone to go to. There was always a, a group that would prop you up. There were always people that would keep you company. And so I think people can be a lot lonelier now as we move to the cities. So urbanization, this uh, one would say the inevitable trend, Worldwide has deprived uh, deprived people of that community support. Um, I think also in that the, the our degree of uh, freedom of speech has probably changed, and political correctness I don't see as a good thing. Uh, the cotton wool wrapping kids in cotton wool uh, that you can't do this and you can't do that. Uh, we've seen a, a huge uh, loss of freedom of kids and. Uh, I think that, I hate to say it, but look, a lot of people are being told to live like battery hens. You're in, you're in your apartment, you're in the city. Are you a battery hen? <laughs> you know? This is a, this is totally different from the way we used to live. Mm. And, and, and that, uh, traditional Kiwi way is pretty much gone. It's gone. Forget it. You know, we go on about Kiwi culture, but I think we've lost it. We've allowed these things to come in and tell us how we should live. We allow the the natural forces of commerce to drive us into cities when there could have been another way. Um, so it's it's massively changed, and it's a social change. Yeah, yeah, interesting, and I I enjoy your metaphor about the the battery hens actually, and when you when you think about it, sometimes. That is a little bit what it feels like is that you kind of get up and you just go and do the same thing over and over again and um, don't don't get out and explore and don't get out and get uncomfortable or, or to or challenge yourself at all. One of the great problems we have today is depression and uh, particularly male depression. Now, <laughs> you might ask why that is. Um, in my viewpoint, males have gone for a point of daily being able to uh, express this natural chemical they have in them called adrenaline through adventure and hard, I suppose, hard work. Now, as a battery hen, that adrenaline gets channeled into the wrong 
veins into the wrong courses. In today's society, it's very difficult. If you don't go out for your daily one-hour you know, workout or whatever like this, you've got this uh, testosterone that needs to be released. And we have a lot of male uh, depression these days. I think the two are very strongly connected, that we're living in a world where a male naturally cannot expend his testosterone in a healthy way. That leads to bad consequences, but there is an alternative, and there always used to be an alternative. I mean, a, a day on the farm, haymaking on the farm, <laughs> you'll expend your testosterone. As we know, a day uh, in outdoor adventures also does the same thing. But this is where the battery hen syndrome is very dangerous because the energy and the testosterone becomes internalized and it pops out and releases in places that is very bad for society and long-term very depressing for the individual. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting take on it as well. Um, and I've had similar conversations with a couple of other guys on, on the podcast as well. Ben Logan, who who runs a kind of an outdoor survival um, training down in, in Wanaka, um, but also Dr. Greg Emerson, who helps him out with that. And I think, especially for, for guys, I mean, sitting, sitting all day for, for anyone isn't, isn't helpful. But as you say, we, we've got all this energy um, and, and, th- uh, excitement that we need to go out and and expend, and if we're not not doing that, one we we start to lose it a little bit. And I think there have been studies that have shown that if you're just going to work and then coming home and sitting in front of TV, a TV, your testosterone levels are going to are going to drop down, um, which isn't isn't great as a as a man, but also it kind of it. Definitely, you almost lose a sense of purpose with that as well. That if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, you're you're not getting you're not getting challenged. You're not getting inspired. You you don't have that same drive to to get up and and be excited about life. Yes, that's right. I, I think that's what we need. We need to be excited about life, but we also need to address. Uh, the natural release of this chemical, which in men is uh, is there being produced all the time. And it's there for good purposes. But uh, as I say, in, in the battery hen culture, uh, it will not find itself uh, you know, down the right channel. Mm, mm. And I, I think that kind of comes back to, to the way that you and, and all of your friends were have released that um that testosterone but also um had a lot of excitement along the way is that you have gone out and you've explored things and you've done things that have a lot of sort of adrenaline based activities did you recognize that at the time that that was something that um help release that testosterone when you got into it or is it only kind of on reflection that that has become apparent to you? I think uh, I've always been aware of that Um, right back from the early days at university. uh, You have a a week where you you just can't do any exercise because the work's too too long and uh, demanding and you just get, you know, what we call cabin fever. 
And because at the time I was doing mountain and ocean sports, and I really felt the days when I wasn't able to do that, I didn't even perform as well. But I also got this this built up, this something was building up inside you. You you wanted to explode, and it was difficult to sleep that night. And I think that was just that natural energy and testosterone. Um, so the drive was there very early, going into a career. How can I avoid this battery hen lifestyle that everyone seems to end up in academic careers? And I actually, I did do a, a couple of years of employment, but almost all my life since then, I've been self-employed. And so have many of my friends. And the way it works is that instead of going to the city for the job, you went to the city to win the service contract. Then you came back to your home and made your home your laboratory or your design factory. And uh, there are many, many people I know that, that do that. Um, when I went to Silicon Valley, I was looking at working permanently for some, some of the companies there. And I just bucked all the way. I said, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to, even though it was tempting. But then I thought there's another way. I think it was somebody that actually saw the photos of where I lived in New Zealand that said, oh, my God, what are you doing here? I said, but this is California. This is the Mecca. This is where it all happens. Yeah, but look at that photo. You know, and I said, yeah, you're right. And I thought, hmm, if I could get the action that's happening in Silicon Valley, bring it back to the beach, bring it back to New Zealand, have the lifestyle there, that's another road. That's another way to do it. At the same time, I was reading in a magazine there in Silicon Valley this new concept of working. There were people called consultants. This is a long time ago, so this is very new. I thought, wow, let's try that. So what I did, my objective was to, to make deals with the companies in Silicon Valley and also in Europe and then bring the contract back to New Zealand. And I built half of my house as the laboratory and I ended up designing and building on the beach, basically. That allowed me two hours, whatever, per day or more to go and take on the outdoor activities. And I worked so much better being able to read the weather map and work fully charged when I was working and still be able to recreate. And there was no travel time involved at all. So the whole work, the whole thing worked nicely. Those people I was working for never knew that that's how it was working. And the people around me who were doing the sports with me didn't know I was involved in that scene. It was my little secret. But the thing was, and of course I can reveal it now because it's all behind me, uh, but the thing was that was too maverick and people would possibly be disturbed by the fact that you were working outside the mold, if you like. But it worked fine. It was fantastic. And if that system ever stopped, I would immediately know and feel that I was lacking in that daily testosterone release or, or that that adventure that makes you bright-eyed at the end of every day and brings you back to the working desk uh, fully charged and refreshed. So uh, it was, again, I say that innovation isn't just technological. Innovation is looking at life and saying, what can it possibly be? And going out there and believing it, you can find a way to do it. Just because it hasn't been done before and just because people might knock you along the way that fully don't understand it, it doesn't mean it won't work. And it did work. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's how it all started. And that's how it continued for 40 years, I suppose.
uh, mm. 35, 40 years. Yes. And it, it was, it was great. And, um, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah. I, I love that story. I, I really enjoy the messages from that. And I, th- I for my for myself as well I, I find that if i'm if i'm not out there if i'm not doing things on a on a regular basis then i'm just I, i'm nowhere near as good of a person uh, if i don't have that opportunity to to get out there and, and move myself and go and explore and uh and and challenge myself physically and get into nature as well Yes, and I think that works for everybody, including the New Zealand farmer, if they if they still exist in the same way. But uh, at the end of the day, the farmers, I remember around Taranaki, they were just full of glee and, and restfulness and, and, and because they'd been working all day long. Um, and uh, I don't know what it's like well, now because I, I haven't met many farmers because it's, it's machines that do the work, but it testosterone doesn't have to be burnt out in the surf or on the mountain. It can be burnt out working on the farm. And I saw many families that were happy through the daily farm work because it was, uh, you know, it was all conducive to a great outcome at the end of the day. Mm, Very cool. Clive, obviously that was, that was kind of pretty, a pretty challenging way to, to do things for a lot of people's uh, thought processes at the time. Have you seen kind of society become more accepting of, of people working that way over time? Or is it still something that we're pretty reticent to? I think society is totally open to that now. Um, the thing is that you've, you've got to, uh, You've got to establish yourself first, I think, has always been the thing and still is the thing. But society now is actually, remember, society is pretty much the baby boomers who are making the rules, and they're the ones that broke the rules, and I guess we would be part of them. Um, so society is very open to doing things a different way. And the moral question is, how can they? They definitely want to, and they're not just open to it, but they're, uh, they're, they're seeking it. And I think that, uh, you know, this is where a lot of our film shows with Last Paradise are actually audiences who are seeking that, who are actually looking to how they can optimize their, their life and rethink it in a way, uh, that's going to be, um, not only exciting for today, but leads to a great retirement. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and we, we were talking before we started recording actually about how, how you do that with the film and how you um you, you take it around and, and people have been really getting really inspired by by watching it do you have any advice for people about how they can can do that for their lives well i think you've really got to have a plan um i've always had a a five-year plan uh, a one-year plan uh, and all the way down to a daily plan and I've actually kept the diary since I was 17 years old. So it sounds a bit weird, but I guess that's just a byproduct of, of being that way inclined. Um, with, with the plan, it doesn't mean you, you can't ditch the plan, but it means that every fork you take in the road today has been considered almost instinctively knowing what the final destination is. And I think that is um, something that if your plan 
is is well conceived and you know that your plan is not working for just success it's working for what you want in life for what your personality is and things that will uh, bring you the right things for the particular person you are because everyone's different and then if you bear that in mind with a long-term plan and know solidly in your mind what that plan is then every day is not wasted because it's it's one step forward uh, in in the right direction. Mm, yeah, that's that's a really good point as well. And I think I mean creating that plan takes a reasonable level of self analysis to understand yourself and understand what it is that you're looking for in life and what it is that you enjoy, what it is that you don't enjoy. And I think sometimes for people kind of operating in that in that battery hen kind of lifestyle and battery hen mindset, that it's much easier not to to do that self analysis and just to kind of stick with the with the status quo. Um, and I think it it takes a, a certain amount of takes a certain amount of discomfort or a certain amount of pain to to get to the point where you start asking yourself those questions if it's not something that you have been been brought up to do which is 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 challenging for a lot of people um and i still find challenging myself actually is sometimes asking myself those those hard questions um it's a little bit easier not to do that after uh after what i perceive as a as a busy day when you when you're talking about your plan Clive, um, obviously you're saying that hey, it does it does evolve over time, and it doesn't need to kind of happen to the letter. Um, but it's kind of a general guide for you. How often are you sitting down, and how often are you reviewing that plan as you kind of create uh, new experiences and develop new perspectives about things? Oh, I suppose it's probably about uh, once once a year, but the plan is shaped and formulated. Often, uh, actually, when, when I'm surfing or, or kite surfing, it seems that during that time, um, all these pure thoughts come into your head, which relate to your inner self. And you feel like you really feel like you are yourself. And uh, it seems that clarity, because the noise of society is what keeps distracting us from our plan. And, and uh, if you go and live out, uh, when I was writing the script from Last Paradise, I went for three months in the desert. Sounds a bit biblical, doesn't it? But actually, that's not coincidental because when you look at all the uh, religious uh, inspirationalists, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Buddha, Muhammad, they all retreated to the wilderness or what they called the garden, some of them or the cave. They all did that to be able to remove themselves from the noise of society and then re reconsider and think above the level of society about you know something higher or or a game plan or, or strategy or whatever. In their case, it was a, it was a new new uh, belief system. Well, that happens to anybody if they remove themselves from society long enough. They will enter a different plane of thought, and it's during that time where you can really see clearly who you are and where you want to go. And I think it's probably not so much just an annual thing. 
mind you, I do that annually anyway as I, as I go up to the northwest of Australia up there, which was initially for just, just chasing the waves. Um, as a consequence, that immersion daily in that extreme nature and in the, um, the time to to just think and listen, that's when you can really see it clearly. And I think the thing is today that 24-7 we are immersed in this noise of society and now it's not just the society of the uh, the village or the farm, it's the society of the noisy city. And, and what happens is you get dragged along with the, the group psychology, you've got the television telling you, uh, how you should think and so on like that, but retreat into the likes of the desert. Uh, a real retreat is a fantastic thing. And for me, that's probably been where I've done it and where I can be, be honest to what really, uh, not just I want in life, but what is right for me in terms of my own psyche. And I, and I think that's, uh, what, what a lot of people would, would benefit from. I don't necessarily have to go into the desert, but there's something similar that that will establish that that mind frame. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's so hard to change the way that we're thinking or give us an, ourselves enough space to to think if we don't consistently kind of remove ourselves from that that noise of society and that kind of constant bombardment of. Um, noise that that reinforces the sort of that the battery hen metaphor as well and i often find that i have the my kind of best ideas or my most insightful moments when i'm out uh, running through the bush or hiking or um in in the sea where i'm just kind of taking taking myself away and, and being in nature just with myself moving forward clive uh, I mean, that's that's really good advice to kind of help change us as individuals. I think, I mean, the, it seems to me that this path that society is on at the moment as well and the world is on is not sustainable the way that we're doing things at the moment. What sort of things need to, to change at a, at a societal level, do you think? Well, I... I've always believed, and, and it just gets reaffirmed every year, that almost all the problems with the world today are because of overpopulation. They all reduce down to that. Um, and it's, when you come to Africa, you'll see it again. And I, and I think that, uh, of course, uh, there are certain elements of commerce that, that are to blame, and there's certain um, aspects of human nature that are to blame. And uh, these things, I fear, will always be there because that's the way the commercial world is constructed and that's the way our genes are constru constructed. But in most cases, you can boil almost any problem down to world overpopulation. Now, the distressing thing is, and this is where I lose hope, is that the conversation isn't even on the table yet. There is no world... Um, consortium coming together on uh, control of the world's population and like there has been with climate change whether that's successful or not at least there is the intention to meet regularly on this issue so there's a lot of taboo around this subject but um, 
you know, the, the logic and the scientist will confirm it again and again that uh, that's, that's the biggest issue that's going to befall us. And it's already befallen the wilderness and uh, the human race itself. And uh, looking at Madagascar, you know, a country that's just been stripped of vegetation and this, this huge population that's now got to find somewhere else to get their charcoal or their food. Where does that end? You know, it's, a, it, it's just a country which is at the front end of where the world is going. And, uh, you know, it's again, it's, it's this population thing. So shoot me down because I mentioned it, uh, but I fear it's, it's got to be on the table and it's still not on the table for world mm. discussion. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is a discussion that we, we need to be having, I think. I mean, you've mentioned that that is kind of where you lose hope. Are there areas that you are hopeful for? Yes, I'm hopeful for the, uh, the resilience of human nature. Um, I'm hopeful for the, the innovation of technology. Um, but I guess I have to corner my hope uh, to have any general hope at all. I, I have to focus my hope in certain areas because if you've seen it, as I said, if you saw it how it was 50 years ago, you do despair. You really despair, you know, to go back to Africa and see all those beautiful, incredible plethora of fish everywhere and every color of coral reef just to see mud and dead coral almost everywhere. You know, it, it's just, oh, because I knew it as a kid, I was there swimming amongst it, you know, diving amongst it. And I witnessed it. You know, it's, it's the most devastating thing. You almost have to curb your travel because you know, it can be depressing. Anyway, I, I don't want to get depressing about it. But anyway, it's, it's absolutely uh, devastating to witness it then and now. Mm. Uh, but in Last Paradise, it's a positive story. It's a, it's a fun story where you just witness it in a different context. And all these underlying factors you can work out for yourself. You know, we're not there to tell you um, how to think about it. We're just there to give you that clear vision into the world that used to be and the world is today. Mm, yeah yeah and i think that's a that's an important point that it that you don't tell people what to think but you just merely tell them to think i've got a um got a couple more questions for you clive um the, the questions that i like to ask everybody before we uh, before we finish off uh now i haven't prepped you with these either and often than i will i'll send a send a copy of them through to people beforehand um so you are putting you on the spot a little bit with these the first one is, can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? Um, I suppose the, the most enduring feeling of failure would have been at, at school uh, when, when we came to New Zealand and it was all about um, sports. I, uh, I failed in sports. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, we were homeschooled. So... Um, being homeschooled, you get an aptitude test when you come to New Zealand back then. And they put you in a class accordingly. And uh, by the way, you can learn a lot more 
in, in two hours when you're homeschooled than you can in the classroom in, in five or six hours. And um, so we did pretty well in the aptitude test, and we were shoved a year or two ahead of our years, which in a country whose sport depends on uh, being heavy, that is football, rugby, depends on being quite massive uh, if you want to make the first 15. Uh, I just got my bones snapped. Every time I went in the field, I, I just got injured. You know, the, the, the only thing I learned there was when you see that ball coming towards you, get the hell out of there. You know, <laughs> just get out of there. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time on the sideline. And uh, the consequence of that was, and even the teachers didn't respect you, actually. The consequence of that was I just felt like sports wasn't my thing. I was I was just not going to be a sports person. Uh, I buried myself in, in study and academia. And I thought, well, at least I'll gain some self-esteem through that. And so for one thing, I learned that, uh, okay, if you're not good at one thing, well, maybe there's another one. Go and find another area when you can gain self-esteem and hopefully one day gain some success. But on top of that, what happened was, as we all grow up into sixth and seventh form, um, we all catch up. And I, I had the age of 15 started surfing, and we had just blundered into this place that was in our backyard, basically. It was Raglan, and very few people were surfing it in those days. And we were trying to figure out how we could ride these big waves. So at the university swimming pool, which was always empty, it seemed, because it wasn't heated back then, um, I started swimming. And I got really good at swimming. Like uh, every day I'd swim a kilometer and as fast as I could. And then I became very, very good at uh, surfing because it's all about catching waves, especially when, when the surf's rather, rather large. Um, and so the, um, this new sport emerged. And, and I really started meeting these guys from all over the world that were traveling to New Zealand and discovering the surf there. And they're really cool guys. And then they, they invited me to their place. And I had a few mates in New Zealand that would travel with us. And this whole other world opened up. And then there was the, the mountains in New Zealand, whereby we, uh, we couldn't afford to ski, but we, we got an old bus and renovated it, and we put it in a paddock in a farm, and we, we went up and got jobs on the mountain, and thereby we got into skiing. And I thought, well, hang on, I actually, I actually like sports. Sports is cool. It's just that the particular type of sport that was called sports for us as kids was the benchmark. That was the golden standard. If you're not good at this, if you're not good at footy, you're not good at sports. I know things have changed now, but that's how it was back then. And so it was just going my own way and saying, well, whatever, there's got to be something else. And it brought me back to sports, which became almost the mainstay of my life. And that's how we ended up in this, uh, what we call uh, adventure sports or extreme sports world today. We ended up at the front end of it because jumped out of football. Mm. Uh, whereas if I'd stuck with football, stuck with this mindset that, oh, that's the gold standard of sports. If you don't do that, you're a failure. Now, you consider that principle over all of life. So that's what I learned from it, that in every aspect of life, just because you think you're not good at it, there's something else that you are good at it, or you're even good at that thing if you come from another angle. So there was a road back into sports for me, but even if I didn't go down that road, and as I did, went into the, the road of technology, I mean, that just totally opened up to be involved in, in physics and electronics 
in the early 70s, uh, you know, in the Silicon Valley world, you couldn't have been in a better thing. If I'd been good at sports, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a it's a powerful lesson. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you were no good at uh, at formal sports when you were younger. Um, and it seems like uh, the the sports that you have got back into as well are more. There is more opportunity for um, kind of creating your your own way to do things with them as well. Definitely, when you when you took them up. Uh, uh, com- probably compared to compared to now, um, there's a lot more opportunity to sort of find your own way and be be creative with them. Yes, there is. I mean, it's still wide open. There's there's so much yet to to innovate in adventure sports. Uh, there, it's just going on and on. And the great thing is that uh, the underlying. Um, tool is still physics by looking at the physics of the process you can imagine then you can model then you can apply then you can test and this is going on every day particularly in kite surfing and foil surfing Mm. clive what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it i stubbed my toe yesterday (laughs) but i got through it (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> a lifetime of experience got me through it. The last uncomfortable thing I did, uh, I did physically was probably the last big day I, I kite surfed here at One Eye. <laughs> but again, you get through it. Familiarity. When you come into a new scene in uh, extreme sports, it's like coming into a new scene in business. You feel like you're on your back foot because – there are all these new people. Uh, there are all these people who on the face look extremely confident and they know everything. And then it's only a few weeks later that you're with them and then a few weeks later that you're extremely confident. And you've just got to know that. Don't be daunted by a new scene. And I remember when I first went to Silicon Valley, I looked at all these, these, these individuals, these entrepreneurs, these players out there. Some of them would be big. Some of them would disappear. And then I was daunted. And I didn't know at that point there this principle. If I had known that principle, then I would have probably gone in in a different way. But in the end of, in the, end of the day, uh, the principle became clear. Um, but it's, it's applying that principle in all walks of life. Don't be intimidated by the new crowd, the new scene, because you know You've done it before, and you can do it again. Mm. Does jumping into that scene and kind of engaging with the people that are there, especially if they're sort of more advanced than you, do you feel that that really accelerates your progress? No, I don't really thrive on that. No, no, I I tend to thrive more on uh, working on my abilities with the raw substrate. Um, so if I, if I was designing something technologically, I would know that I have the mathematical tools to do it. I have the experience and I will hone that to take it on. I almost blinker out that noise of competition. I can't stand that. Uh, the, in, in the same respect, uh, say, uh, uh, taking on a, a big new surf spot or kite surf spot, uh, you look around you and there's, there's all this ego and fuzzing, well, Go f- wait for a big day and it's all gone, and everyone's mm. 
friendly and shaking hands and that's it. Wait for a black flag day when they close the beach, you know, and the guys out there will stick by you. They'll become your best mates. And all that noise is gone. And that's the same in business. There's a lot of noise out there that intimidates you. But the real people won't be competitive with you. The ones that you will eventually aspire to equal will not be a threat at the beginning. They're the genuine people. So if you can realize that and block out this noise of egos and this horrible thing called competition, which keeps infecting our sports, then you'll get back to what the pure sport is. Those people, when it's all filtered out, will be your friends for life. And you'll, you'll end up accruing this, uh, this, this great friendship that's, that's global. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting take on it as well. And I think I, I agree with you there. I mean, there's a lot of competition out there, which I, I don't think is, is necessary. Um, there are a lot of people out there that are, that, that are better than me at doing things, but I kind of see them as an opportunity for me to, to learn off and to, uh, to help me get better. And, and as you say, the, the ones that sort of have that mindset as well, uh, tend to be the ones that will help push you forward and help drive you along rather than the ones that have that more kind of competitive act. Uh, attitude that are almost trying to push you back down and yeah. and keep you keep you away. Yeah, what you're looking for is is the humble mentor uh, that that you respect because you naturally, instinctively, will learn more off someone you respect. Um, but she, the, the the humble mentor, I think, is the the ideal persona that you want to uh, gravitate to. Mm, mm, I like that. I like that. Clive, what is the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? I suppose the next uncomfortable thing, although it'd be exciting, like they they all start off as being, is is taking uh, Last Paradise around the USA. Um, I know it's an extreme challenge these days with cinema. We've, we've done Australia very fully and that was great. That went off really well. Um, the uncomfortable aspect about it is that it's it's huge. It requires a huge amount of work, and it's just so easy to just say, "Let's have another year of you know <laughs> of ditto um, and enjoy the flow of life at the moment." Uh, but you say, "No, no, this is in this is why I made the movie. It was to to get it round the world. So we're going to do that, and it's going to take a lot of effort." And so we've got to get out with the calendar and the drawing board and um, just be psychologically prepared for uh, imparting a lot of energy and, and money, I suppose, as well. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is a, it's so easy to say, nah, let's, let's toss it. But you, I, I believe that you've got, uh, you've got two people in yourself. You've got yourself and you've got your future self. So some people just live for themselves today but other people are constantly working to honor their future self and this is part of that i promised myself i would do this when i was 15 years old i started making this movie last paradise with a promise that i would take it around the world <laughs> i'm halfway through that now <laughs> no. so it's so easy to just look at yourself in the mirror and say nah don't bother but then i i don't think i'd be happy with myself doing that so I, th I think that uh, it depends on your personality but some people do 
see themselves as two people. That is the person they have to honour for the future, uh, saving for your retirement, um, establishing the right relationships, because you're thinking about tomorrow. Yeah, so I think mm. that's uh, that's where you go through it, that uh, sort of unawkwardness. And at the end of the day, you know that it will pay dividends for your future self. Mm. You have almost asked, answered my next question just with that bit there. Um, but do you have any strategies that you use for approaching uncomfortable situations? It's a lot easier when uh, you're, you've had a life's experience behind you because your strategy is able to be supported by your confidence because you know that in the past a certain strategy worked, a certain one didn't, but more so you know that it's possible. You know you will overcome it. So I just have this sort of blind faith. It's not blind faith in um, the universe or anything like that. It's a blind faith that uh, I will impart the resources to rise to the occasion to make it happen once I've committed to make it happen. So that somehow makes it easier, and you almost stave off uh, the uh, – you stave off the the worry by doing that, and you you sort of, once you've made the plan, you live in this sort of day type week type compartment where you you get done what needs to be done in the grand scale plan uh, for this week or this day, and then you know that you will a- achieve what what you want to achieve eventually. Mm, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Clive, I've got a couple of more questions for you. Um, I know the waves are about to start getting up over there, and you're probably quite keen to get out on them. Um, But I just want to take a minute again to say thank you so much for for spending some time with me today. It's been amazing to to chat. Um, But also thank you as well for uh, showing us all of the all of the stuff in in the last paradise. I mean, the the wonders of the of the wilderness, the importance of of getting out there and enjoying it, and kind of engaging in adrenaline based activities, and why that they're, they're so important to us. It's it's really uh, it's really awesome to see. And as I said, I I loved it. Uh, it was an, an amazing film. Um, so that kind of leads nicely into the, into the next question that I have. If people are interested in it or interested in the work that you do, where can they go to, to find out more, to support you, to, to help out? Yes, well, Last Paradise is used both to entertain uh, people who are already in adventure sports, but also to help uh, enhance the lives of those who are or may not be in all sorts of areas. So we do have shows uh, that we take around the country and around the world, um, but it's also possible for people to organize their own show. Um, You can go to the website. It's all described there. You can see the trailer and you can see, you can buy DVD there. You can download the film or whatever. um, And you can also organize your your own screening or come to one of ours. And many people actually just... Uh, get the film, the DVD, or whatever, and and actually get uh, you know fifty people around, and and hold their own screening. Uh, when we hold ours uh, in the entertainment ones, are usually in quite big cinemas, so it's just like a big cinema night, and there's a Q and A after. But we also have smaller ones whereby we have an interest group come along, and that their interest group can be anything from from business 
through to um, wellness, through to uh, healthy living or e extreme sports. And, uh, and that's where we'll, I'll give a talk before and a, a talk after. And, and also I, I talk as a scientist as well, as I don't think I mentioned, but you know, the, the, the physics is key in Last Paradise. And the physics for me has been a lifetime journey as well. And so we can develop not only in terms of, of their, their lives, but in terms of how they can tackle um, whatever venture, outdoor venture that they're uh, aspiring to, to, to master or even inventing this whole concept of innovation, uh, whether it's innovation of a, a new kind of silicon chip or whether it's innovation of a new kind of extreme sports. Uh, in Last Paradise, it's, it's sort of, <laughs> it, it addresses, hopefully addresses many areas and stimulates people to, to, to go out there, evaluate life, evaluate what's possible and get their friends involved. And um, I, I think just inject energy into them and enthusiasm of, of seeing the world um, the way it was, the way it is, and what's possible in their lives. So, yeah, go to the site. It's uh, lastparadisefilm.com, and it's always, it was always a fun evening. So uh, I look forward to any feedback from, from anyone, and um, that's what we made it for. And that's, I suppose, why uh, at the age of 15 I, I had this idea, and I thought, well, it's got to be more than just a film. It's got to be something to share with my mates, but also even people I don't know can open their eyes to something. Mm. And I would, I would highly recommend it, and I'll, I'll pop some links to it in the notes for the, the episode. Before we finish up, Clive, do you have any challenges to leave me and the listeners with this week? Well, maybe to perhaps find a time in the year when you can retreat and go into a place of, of wilderness and take with you your, your diaries, take with you uh, any any notes, any photos of what your your life is, what your life's been, and consider uh, thinking what 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 you are, what 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 are the things that really mean a lot to you, and what you see for the rest of your life you'd like that to blossom into, or you'd like to um, adapt it to, uh, in the hope that one day you'll be able to look by and say. Oh yeah, that was my life, and and that was me, and that was probably the way it was meant to be because I'm this kind of person. I'm not one of those battery hens, or I wasn't meant to live that life. And I can feel now that that I led the life though I was meant to live. So if they could get into that space and look behind, and also look ahead, and that that'd be a, a great little little challenge. And I look forward to feedback from anybody who could try that. And it is about removing yourself from the noise of the city and the noise of society and, uh, and looking from grassroots point of view from, from your own core. And it doesn't mean to have to say you have to be isolationist at all. Um, remember a good life is, is about your interaction with other people as well, but everybody is really good at something and everybody can be really gratified by something, but we do have to watch out that we don't look at everyone else and say, oh, they say that's cool, or they're gratified by that. I better do that because they're my peer group or whatever. You've got to think things out from knowing yourself. And then finally, when you've, you've gained a lifetime in um, manifesting that to the fullest, you're in a position to be able to help others and share that with people 
And hopefully you'll have a bunch of friends who can really relate to that and can really uh, benefit from that as well. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for getting uncomfortable with me today, Clive. I've been lying on the bed. It wasn't uncomfortable at all, but, but anyway, in the metaphorical sense, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you.